Fundraising everywhere. 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 Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, where we give you a glimpse into one of our amazing webinars or conferences. You can check out one of our full sessions and get a 50% discount by using the code FEPODCAST at fundraisingeverywhere.com. Yep, just head to the Fundraising Everywhere website and use the code FEPODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off any of our sessions. Hi, everybody, and happy Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us today, especially since it is so beautifully sunny outside. I'm very happy that you've chosen to spend an hour with fundraising everywhere and charians that you can learn how to use behavioral science in your day to day. So I'm going to hand over to Cherian in just a moment. Um, but before I do that, for any of you that are new, you are super welcome here. My name is Nikki Bell and I'm one of the co-founders of Fundraising Everywhere. Fundraising Everywhere is the online learning community and platform created by fundraisers for fundraisers just for you um, and as well as these webinars we have monthly conferences um, ongoing supports that you can feel supported safe and empowered in your role at your charity so um, we're really excited to be able to, to bring this webinar uh, to you and next month we're trying something new we have a, a totally open mic conference called over to you um, you can register and when you register, you can tell us if you want to speak, you can raise your hand on the day if somebody's talking about something that you want to get involved in. And just the idea from this is that we just wanted to make it as open as possible um, and just see what happens, like see where the conversations go, have conversations, share what's working, share what's not working, have debates, you know, challenge ways of, of thinking um, and, and working and just see what comes out of it. And then we, Fundraising Everywhere, will use that uh, to develop some resources and support to help you go on further as well. Um, and if you want to be part of a positive change uh, for the sector, a sector, you know, that thinks about you and hears what you're saying and, and gives you what you need, then please do join us as a member. We would absolutely love to help you. We use that membership um, uh, funding uh, to put it back into events like these, pay speakers and push for those positive changes in the sector. So I do hope that you'll join us so we can continue to do that um, and do more of it, because obviously that's what we want to do. And if you're not new here and you've come back, then, you know, massively appreciate the support. Um, everything that we do is, is with you in mind. And just thank you so much for helping us get to this point. Uh, we feel very lucky to, to work with you and to be able to do things like this. Um, but that's enough from me. Um, so we do have the fantastic Cherian Koshi, who is here today to talk to us about behavioral science. Um, and he's the chief development officer at Endowment Partners. Now, if you don't know what behavioral science is and, you know, all of those bits going on to it and how it's going to apply to your work, 
that's exactly what today is. So I'm not going to go into it because Cherry will be able to do it way better than I can. But basically in this webinar, you are going to learn the marketing principles from the world's most successful companies and how you can use it in fundraising, strategies to get inside your donors' minds and understand how to connect with them, I'm sure in an ethical way, how understanding your donors' brains will make you a better fundraiser and data-backed insights you can apply to your own nonprofit. Um, and Cherry said, if you've ever wished you could read your donors' minds, you will love this session. You don't have to be a neuroscientist understand how your donors brains affect their decision to support your nonprofit. he is going to show you how to do it too so that's a really good moment to hand over to cherry and thanks so much for being here have a great webinar Thank you so much, Nikki, and uh, thank you all for being here. I am so thrilled to be on this platform once again and to talk about something that I uh, love very dearly, um, that I've studied and I've, I've enjoyed thinking about, and I hope you are too. We are going to spend the next few minutes together talking about behavioral science and um what that means for your organization, particularly if you are a small or mid-sized organization and how that might uh, impact your work, uh, particularly with fundraising appeals and, uh, and activities that you do. Now, before I get started and, um, and even talk about our, our, the, the, the agenda for today, I want to acknowledge the fact that a lot of times, um, beyond my own personal imposter syndrome, we, as a sector, tend to, um, to to hear from folks. They, you know, they put on a collared shirt and a tie, and they uh, present themselves as experts. And while I appreciate so much Nikki's kind words, I don't want to come across to you as someone who is purporting to be an expert in any way. I, like you, am a learner. I will go out and I will learn things that I'm curious about that I think might apply to my own. Uh, fundraising work to my clients. And I want to bring that to you uh, to share that learning to say, here's what I found over here. And I think you might benefit from this thing. Where possible, as you'll see in the slides that are about to come up on the screen, um, you will have access to the slide deck, but you will also see that I have highlighted the primary research for the behavioral science uh, efforts uh, that I've done the, the, the work on so that you can follow this research yourself. You don't have to believe this, this guy on the screen. Um, you can go do this own work yourself to say, is this true? Do I believe this? Is this actually uh, something that makes sense? Or is there other science? Is there other data that you would bring to the conversation, your own lived experience, as well as your organization's DNA to the conversation to be able to um, to improve upon the work that you're doing. So uh, you'll, I'll highlight some of those places. You'll get access to this. And um, throughout this process, I just want to remind you of one very big, big truth, which is that we are all biased. I don't know if you knew this, but we are all biased in uh, our own very special ways. And as a result of that, uh, my challenge to you, if you take a nap for the next 45 minutes or so, or you have to run off to grab a cup of coffee or answer some emails, I totally understand that. And here's the thing that I want to I want to remind you of that I will keep coming back to. Our goal as fundraisers is to use bias for better, to use bias 
for better, to improve our communities, uh, to work well with one another. And so that's what I hope you come away with at the end of this session. So with that, let's jump into our conversation today. And I want to share with you kind of the, the big five points that I want to discuss. First of all, our search for rational behavior. Um, and as I mentioned before, we are all biased, but I'm going to make the case that we all act irrationally. You've probably heard some of that before. Then I want to talk about our irrational donors, our, our irrational fundraising cells, and the biases and irrationality that we bring into our practices, and how we can control or con con uh, address some of the bias that we bring into the sector. Then I want to talk about a framework for doing behavioral science in your shop, as well as getting into the mind of your donor, understanding what their preferences might be in a way that you may not have heard before. And then we'll get into questions and answers. Please do put your questions and answers into the, the, um, the platform so that we can keep track of those and we'll answer them at the end. I want to start by this quote uh, with Dan Ariely, um, and he's, he talks about how we usually think, think of ourselves sitting in the driver's seat with ultimate control over the decisions we make and the direction our life takes. But in fact, this perception has much more to do with our desires, how we want to view ourselves than with reality. Uh, I had the great opportunity to work with Dan in his course and, uh, and learn from some of his colleagues in behavioral science. And we go through a number of exercises that remind us that one of the biggest challenges that we have as people is our cognitive blindness, our cognitive blindness. So I want to do this exercise with you very quickly. Um, it'd be more fun if we were doing this live, but I am here in the middle of the United States and you are um, probably somewhere in the UK. I want you to um, think about in your mind, what is the icon on your phone in the bottom right corner? Don't look yet. Just think about what is the icon in the bottom right of your screen? Okay. Now, quickly grab your phone and check the answer. Were you right? For most of us, the reality is that we're, we're pretty good. We know, unless we have some dynamic tools on our phones, we have a pretty good sense of what that icon is in the bottom right. It's one that we access very quickly. Now, here's the thing that is an important feature of every phone that is made uh, anywhere in the world. In order to, to unlock the phone, in order to access the phone, one of the first things that comes up is a clock. Can you remember exactly what time it is without looking? I bet you you were a bit challenged by that one. And that is a, an example of cognitive blindness, that we were so focused on the thing that we wanted to focus on that we skipped over the clock that tells us what time it is. But it was information that was presented to us. Now, in addition to your perception, I will tell you that within the first one-tenth of a second, when I came on screen the very first time, you decided whether or not you could trust me. You decided based upon my hair, my eyes, my facial structure, and what I was wearing, whether or not you could trust me. And I've lost some people already because they did not like the tone or timber of my voice. They did not like how I was dressed or how I was presenting myself. And you have already decided not to listen to anything else that I'm going to say. So I apologize to all of you uh, that are in that boat. I hope I can regain your trust as we go through the rest of the slides here. Uh, but just be mindful of our cognitive blindness 
our cognitive uh, blindness that affects us every single day. Now, here's one of the things that I want to um, to have you think about when it comes to where we think of our uh, of rational decisions, right? A lot of times people think of our behavior as um, our motivation as something that has a rational basis, that we go to work every day, we, we wake up, we put on a collared shirt and, and put on a tie or a suit jacket or whatever that professional attire should be. Uh, and we, we walk into our office so that we can make money so that someday we can sit on a beach and as, as uh, my teacher Dan O'Reilly says, so that we can sit on a beach somewhere and drink mojitos. Now, um, the assumption is behind all of that is that the ultimate goal of our lives is to sit on a beach and drink mojitos. But is that really true? Let me challenge that notion for you. If that were true, would this challenge even exist? Would people at any point climb Mount Everest? Do you think that anyone in their right mind would take the time and effort to, to, to prepare in order to climb Mount Everest if they knew the dangers associated with it. In fact, they knew that people not only die, but their bodies are still on Mount Everest because of, their, of the challenges and the risks associated with, um, with, with what happens uh, on the mountain. Do you think that people would ever consider climbing Mount Everest? But people do every year. There's someone on Mount Everest right now, today, that's uh, that's considering that. So Dan did this study at, at, at Duke uh, where he looked at the science of motivation. And I think this is important because I want you to think about your role in uh, the behavioral science component, not just in terms of your donors, but also in terms of internally to your organization, that the reality is that BS, behavioral science, is everywhere. So motivation occurs even in our own organizations, where in fact, we, um, we can motivate or demotivate people. And, and Dan did this study where there are these Lego things called Bionicles. Uh, Bionicles are these little robots uh, that you put together. And they said, you know, if you finish this Bionicle, we'll pay you X amount of, uh, of dollars. And, um, and you just bring it up when you're done and we'll give you a new one to do. And what they found in this study is that people were generally motivated to do it at the different price levels uh, of reward that they would do it. They would do more. They would do more faster. Uh, but one of the things that they did to modify uh, this strategy or this study is to say, um, hand in your Bionicle. And before you get the next one, they take the Bionicle, the Lego piece, and they start taking it apart right in front of you. Now, what would you think happened to the person who was doing this work? Would they do more of these or would they do less of them? Now, Dan will tell you from, from the studies that he's done that have been re replicated that there is a psychological principle at play here where people, when they see their work pulled apart, that they become demotivated. And even um, in studies associated with this, where they took the Bionicle and they just ignored it. They just put it off to the side. Or they did this with some other uh, you know, test subjects and whatnot. That, that even when you ignored it, it decreased motivation. But if you took it apart, or if you shredded their, their paperwork in front of them, that it was a massive demotivation to, uh, to their efforts. How often does that happen in our workplaces where we ignore accomplishments or worse yet, we have a boss who 
takes our work and and red pens it and says, oh, I would never give to that appeal. We need to take out this language. We need to do this. And the, you know, we need to talk more about the organization's success and how good of a boss I am, right? How demotivating is that? And hopefully, my hope is that this is not something that you see on a regular basis. But I will tell you that one of the most important things that you can do uh, in your organization is show gratitude to the people who are working in your organization for just this principle. So on Twitter and on LinkedIn, I shared that I did not want to talk a lot about heuristics. And the reason why I don't want to talk about heuristics is because there are 200 some of them, uh, but they are there are lots of them. There's plenty of access to them online. But I wanted to give you an example of heuristics so that you understand how these the biases, the psychological principles in our brain drive our behavior in ways that are actually predictable, that we know how our biases will influence our decision making. So one principle that you may have heard of is uh, one heuristic is called anchoring. And the thing that I want you to, to say out loud with me is what you start with will determine what they part with. What you start with will determine what they part with. One more time. What you start with will determine what they part with. Now, anchoring is an activity where we set up a condition, typically numerically, to help people understand the value of a thing. And if we value the thing highly, then the price that we charge for that thing is lower. You'll see this in advertising all the time. In fact, there's so much science around advertising and product development that a lot of what we do as fundraisers is a is a grandchild or a great grandchild of that work. Now, the the one kind of takeaway, if you're looking for a behavioral science tool that you can use, is to put your highest level, your highest donor level first, whether it's in an appeal or online. Don't price it too high. Don't put a, a million pounds or something like that on a website because nobody's donating a million pounds on your you know donor website. But and that might kind of turn them off. But when you put something, uh, put a high number, a big number in front of people, their brain starts thinking in higher numbers. It will raise your average gift level. They will add value on their own to the thing that you're doing. Now, audiences matter when it comes to anchoring. When decisions are fast and people haven't really prepared, they have not sat down to think about what they're going to do, then these then anchoring plays a much larger role. The example of that is Yelp. So when you're looking at uh, going to an ice cream shop or going to a pub, when you think about the value of, uh, of a beer, of a pint, you know, there's certain prices that you're willing to pay. Anchoring will help determine where that pricing should be. But with something that is a longer term decision, like a landscaper or a plumber or a roofer or an HVAC person, these are big purchases, so we do a lot of research. We try and base our scope of how much we're supposed to pay. Now, again, I pointed to, uh, I mentioned that I'm uh, going to share the research. All of those underlined uh, links are to research uh, when it comes to anchoring. But I also wanted to show you some good and bad examples of anchoring in the real world, in real life. Wikipedia does this, and I apologize, many of my examples are from the States. You'll uh, you'll forgive that. I, I have updated a bit of the language, put in appropriate use uh, where necessary. But Wikipedia does this really quite wrong. So the default option, which is actually a different heuristic, is to give once instead of to give monthly. So people think that's the preferred option. 
Remember, our brains are trying to process quite a bit of information in a very short amount of time. So if you tell me that once, just once, is highlighted, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take the cognitive work to do something else. It also starts with a very low amount. So that's where the brand tells me I should start. That's probably where most people give. That's a different heuristic as well, social proof. Uh, and we'll get to an example of this in a second. But a few people are going to start at 100 on the right side and the lower side of the screen and work backwards and say, oh, I want to give $100. They're going to start at 275 and say, oh, I can do that. Oh, I can actually do five. Maybe I could do 10, 10 pounds or whatever. Um, but they're not going to go all the way up. They're going to say yes, and they're going to stop. The, the, uh, another example of this is World Vision, right? You'll see at the bottom of the screen, um, they've made the default a single gift, not a monthly gift. And you have to click a button to give monthly, even though it says giving monthly is the most powerful way to donate. There's a, there's a difference there, right? It's the most powerful way, but you're not asking me for that. So maybe you don't even believe that. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure World Vision does, but that's what the donor does, it says. So they're working from left to right. In the Western world, we often work from left to right. If you are in a different culture um, where the, the information is presented differently, then you would modify this behavioral science strategy to fit your needs. But for the Western world, which is the audience of, of this particular website, they're the audience is moving left to right. They, they have highlighted 50. And I promise you, not knowing World Vision's data at all, that they get a lot of average gifts around that $50 mark from this page because it's highlighted one-time $50 gifts because it's highlighted and, uh, and indicated as the preferred model. So let me give you an example of what, what might be a preferred uh, option. So this is the Greater Pittsburgh Community ba Food Bank. You'll see they use colors here, like green colors means uh, healthy, and um, um, and uh, and that reinforces the brand of a food bank, right? Now it says step one: choose a donation amount. Next to get, donate monthly on the left side of the screen, where I start reading, it's, uh, it says greatest impact in a flag. This highlights that monthly giving is the preferred option, and there is only one option. Yes, I want to donate twenty-five dollars a month. We have reduced the number of options, another behavioral science principle, limited choice, in order to just frictionlessly make them say, yep, that's what I want to do. They can always choose. We want to preserve choice. They can choose another monthly gift if they want to, but they would have to do a little bit of work to make some other decision. And then they can go over to the right if they choose to do so and make a one-time gift. You'll see it's not highlighted in any way, but it also starts with the larger amount. It starts with $500, which is a very, in context, a very reasonable amount. Now, here's the thing to note. If you are, if you are a math person, what is $2,500 a month? It is a less, it's a smaller gift than $500 amount, a $500 single gift, right? So, um, the idea here is they would prefer that you give $25 a month than a one-time $500 gift, but people might say, uh, maybe, I, my, maybe I can't do $500. What's the next thing that they would choose? $250. 
A $250 gift, average gift, is less than the monthly gift. So if people make that decision, they're, the, the monthly decision, they're winning in a lot of ways. But even if they make the $200 decision, their, their average gift is quite a bit larger than would be, like for example, World Vision's uh, choice to, to highlight 50 so you'll see that this is a really good example of a lot of, of biases being used to nudge a donor in the direction that you would want them to go. Now, this is one example of many, and I'm sure that it's important that, it, well, it is important to remember that we can't go too far with behavioral science. We can't do things that, as Nikki mentioned in the introduction, are unethical. So one of the things that people stress a lot is the idea of urgency, um, where we say, oh, time's running out. How much of a, how many of us do this at end of year, right? Time's running out. Some organizations do this, especially in the, in the States. They do this around fiscal year, which is happening right now. So time's running out on our fiscal year. Who cares? Why do, why do I care about your fiscal year? <laughs> it's not my fiscal year. I, I It's June for me, right? <laughs> it's June for most normal people. So why do I care about your fiscal year? I don't but they'll say time's running out, time's running out. And what we found is that there actually is a heuristic called reactance, that if you use too much of the behavioral science, if you push it forward unethically, then people sort of realize that they're being conned, that they're, um, that it's not authentic, that they're not, um, they're not in control of the decisions and they will pull back from that. They will react poorly to that. So the thing that I want you to remember and repeat with me is to be a superstar, don't go too far. To be a superstar, don't go too far. And the science of that is that it, it, particular, it relates particularly to urgencies and defaults. Um, as I mentioned, you know, time's running out or you have to respond today. We all kind of know that that's false, even with end of year stuff, unless it's a truth for us because of a tax reason. There really is no reason for us to do that. Make sure that you are always putting the donor in control of the decisions that they're making. So um, give them opportunities to opt out or opportunity. Fundraising Everywhere does a great... Uh, uh, way uh, does a great job of this. So when you registered for this, it, the button to uh, click for emails was unchecked, right? A lot of people default that on and you have to check it, uh, uncheck it to, uh, to get off the list, if you will. But this is an example of a really conscious decision to keep you in control as a member of their community. Also, give people the time to react to change if they, there's something that you need to do over a long period of time um, to get them to change their behavior. A lot of behavioral science is, is about moving people in incremental ways to get them to do what they already want to do. And that's the thing I want to remind you of as well. We're not going to get someone uh, who's a vegan to, um, to give to a charity that, that uh, supports barbecuers, uh, like you know, beef barbecue, you get what I'm saying, right? So, or, or vice versa. If you have a strongly held identity-based belief in something, the likelihood that you will give to the, the direct opposite cause is very, very low and really quite nothing. There's not a lot in behavioral science that will get you from that point A to point B. But when, we sh when we're talking about something that you already care about doing and we want to get you from that decision Want, want to enable the decision that you already want to make, then behavioral science can take um, a role in that as long as we don't go too far. 
Here's the other kind of head fake that I want to share with you, which is that I, I asked you to repeat some rhymes, um, things like um, to be a superstar, don't go too far. It turns out that rhyming words help us not only to remember things, but also help us to uh, believe and change. And there's, uh, there's data around that as well. So you'll note that a lot of advertising has subtle rhyming in it. And we believe things that are rhymes more than we believe unrhyming truths, which is really an interesting phenomenon. So if you can find a way to include some sort of rhyming component, some sort of cadence to your speech, um, whether it's in person like this, or it's um, in the text, if it's on your website, wherever it might be, if you can use that, um, that poetic cadence to your to your appeals, it actually assists in people believing what you're what you're saying. Um, so one of the things that I am fascinated by, which we don't have time to do today, unfortunately, is the idea of sleight of hand. And sleight of hand is really a, uh, a great way of illustrating how our cognitive bi bias, our cognitive uh, blindness uh, affects our, our view of what's happening truly right in front of us. And uh, if we ever get to do this in person, I'll, I'll do some card tricks for you. It doesn't work so well virtually, uh, but it's important for you to know that whenever someone is doing a sleight of hand activity, what they're doing is not trying to distract your attention from the thing that's uh, you know off the screen, right? Like my goal in, in any kind of sleight of hand activity is not to, to focus your attention way away. It's to keep your attention right here to control your attention. And that's what behavioral science should be doing in your fundraising as well, is to keep your focus right in the center. So I want you to think about um, one of the biggest things that we're told when it comes to focusing the attention of our donors and understanding our donors. We're often told, oh, you should just survey your donors. Donors, we should just ask donors, why aren't you asking your donors what they want? I'm going to spend a few minutes telling you why this is actually BS, <laughs> um, why BS adversely affects the, uh, the, the concept of donor surveys. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. What I would say is this, the data and the science that we do have tells us that there is a, quite a bit of bias that goes into a donor survey that adversely affects any decision truly that we would make, or uh, almost any decision that we would make about marketing about uh, fundraising appeals or anything like that. We can introduce bias as fundraisers in very, very subtle ways, just by the words that we use, just by the tense of the word that we use, we can introduce bias into discussions with donors in a significant way that alters their beliefs, alters their view of the world in a very significant way. When it comes to uh, donor surveys, these six concepts identify all the ways in which bias in, is introduced into survey methodology. So the first, and I'm going to go through each one of these because I want to prove to you that every time you, you survey your donors, there, there's an element of bias that goes into what you're asking them in a way that, um, that really results in, in flawed um, outcomes. 
So the first one, as you'll see here on screen, is the idea of demand bias. Now, demand bias is uh, when people have advanced knowledge of the survey. They, um, they know that a survey is coming. This could happen from an email. It could happen from um, whether you tell them that you're going to ask them to show up, whether it's a donor survey or even a focus group. So they have assumptions about the purpose. If you send them an email that says, hey, we would like to do this donor survey to find out your preferences about donating. Well, they know what you're asking. So now they've shaded their beliefs based upon what they're, um, what they're, their, what they think you want to find out about. And so that interaction between the researcher and the respondent alters how they answer those questions. And then anonymous surveys are very different from uh, non-anonymous non or non-confidential surveys. You know this from work, right? If someone asks you to do a an uh, anonymous survey of your boss or or your workplace, your culture, uh, you you answer differently than you do if the survey if they are face to face or there's some tracking methodology to that survey. The next bias is social desirability bias. One of the most important questions to never ever ask is how much would you donate if. Everyone will answer that question at a way higher level than they will actually donate. Why? Because they want to be perceived as generous. They want to be perceived as caring. We all do, right? That is why we need to be mindful of the fact be that people answer questions that they think are socially or morally correct. So open-ended questions like uh, how much or why, asking someone why is a really, uh, is a really dangerous territory. And we'll get Honestly, most of the rest of our talk is, is that piece uh, of answering the question why. But when we ask people why, they're, they're reticent to be, they're, they're unable to answer that question. They don't really know why they made the decision they made. Just like they don't know why um, they, they want to climb Mount Everest. They'll give you a reason. But when you unpack some of those reasons, they're like, uh, that's not actually true right? That's not actually what motivated uh, their decision making. And the other type of question that adversely affects uh, or, you know, is impacted by social desirability bias is the question of if. If this were to happen, would you? We don't know that to be true. We, donors don't have the ability to kind of think outside themselves. And the, the actions that they take, the behaviors that they take, almost always fly in the face of those if questions. The next one is acquiescence and dissent bias. So acquiescence bias is where the person answering the survey selects yes or responds positively like in a focus group. Dissent bias is the opposite. So they they just, yeah, 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 all things are good. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Honestly, you've seen this in board meetings, right? Either someone's just like, going along with the flow, they just are totally fine with whatever's happening, or someone's in there because they have an ax to grind, and they will dissent no matter what's happening, really no matter what the question or the topic is. Then there are neutral or extreme responses. A person may just generally answer surveys neutrally, right? They're kind of in the middle. I would say that for the most part, that's how I answer surveys. I'm usually a three when it comes to things, but there are other people who are just very binary. One, five, yes, no, A, B, whatever. So those people mixed in with neutral responders leads you to very difficult choices when it comes to uh, how do you interpret those, those data points.
And then there's personal and non-response biases. So we have all kinds of personal biases that come in, as I mentioned before, around our um, our culture and our identities and our lived experiences and what do we trust and what do we not. And so um, for a lot of people, they don't like, especially um, right now, people don't trust big institutions, right? It's a very, uh, globally, this is a phenomenon where we have we have distrust in institutions. So if you're a bigger institution and you're sending out the survey, people may have inherent distrust around that, which may make them less likely to respond to your survey, or they may just interact with it in a different way that we can't really control for. The, the I would say that probably the most important thing um, is that when when you do donor surveys, you are asking donors about their behavior. Now, here's a really quick example. Everybody in this room who believes that professional development for fundraisers it should have be should be available online. Should be available online. Raise your hand. I can't see your hand. Raise your hand. If we were in person, I bet you most people's hands would be up, right? Most people's hands would be up because you are in a virtual fundraising training. So of course you're going to be biased. Of course you have self-selected yourself. You have, in this one's free, but if you pay for the, the next one on small shops, right? Uh, or the one on legacies, of course you have already made that decision. You have pulled out your credit card um, to, to validate that. So you are going to justify those decisions. Now, we can use this in positive ways to influence our donors. One of the most important ways to do that is by reaffirming loyalty. So you would say, thank you so much, donors, donor Susie, for your loyal and generous gifts. Those words would bias them towards believing that they are loyal and generous. Thank you so much for your loyal commitment to the national blah, 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 blah. These, these types of, uh, of reinforcements make sure that they have the cognitive bias to say, oh, this is the thing that I do. I will keep doing this thing. I will confirm. Uh, I will look for reasons to confirm the decision. You made a great decision by making a gift to our, our organization. Congratulations. Congratulations on making a difference in our community. Congratulations for looking beyond yourself and making a decision that benefited the, the community around you. These are, these are ways to use those magic words that make a difference in using bias for better. Now, when it comes to un getting inside the mind of your donor, under uh, the, the idea of donor surveys you'll see is over on the right side of your screen with market research. But I want you to walk through this marketing hierarchy for a second and understand where we are, because I've just poked a hole, uh, I think a pretty big one in donor surveys. And that is also true of focus groups and, uh, and even a bit of, around donor observation. But at the bottom of your screen, you'll see the, the commonplace activity in a particular lot of small shops um, where you have the highest paid person's opinion. Someone is very smart. They've, uh, they've, their CEO, their executive director, they have some big title that tells them in their head that their opinion matters more than someone who's trained in fundraising uh, like you are through this work. And because of that, they make decisions that don't actually comport to reality. 
The other one on the other side of the screen is this idea of intuition. A lot of professionals with years of experience and, uh, you know, they, they, they will uh, they will straighten up in their chair and say, oh, they, I don't know what he's saying. He, he He's not one of us. He, he I don't know where that research has come from. I've done this for many, many years. Well, sure you have. I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, but those things that have worked in other organizations or have worked for hundreds of years is not necessarily still true. The world changes. People change. And then this the same is true with these best practices gurus out there. These folks, and I don't mean to poo-poo on, on these folks or any of these studies, but I think we need to take them with a grain of salt, right? I'm trying to be funny on purpose uh, and channel my inner Simon. But the idea here is all of these case studies and, well, that worked in this organization. Your organization's not the same. Your donor base is not the same. Your people are not the same. So those best practices might apply, but you're going to have to do some tweaking in order to get them to apply. So then we get to the market research, which I've talked about already. Um, and then I don't want to scare you with ideas of artificial intelligence and machine learning. All I want you to believe at this point is that artificial intelligence and market research can, uh, it's that computers can do more than humans can do. Can we agree on that? Computers can do more, they can do things faster, so they can analyze data faster than a human can do. We used to do prospect research by going to the library, going to the card catalog to do prospect research. Now we punch a few buttons or we do a Google search. That's all I'm saying. So there are ways in which you can get access to studies and research and things like that. But because we don't often do randomized controlled trials in nonprofits, we lose out on one of the best ways to understand donor behavior, whether it's your existing donors or just donors in general. So what I want to share with you is a behavioral science framework that will help you get from point A to point B and then talk about, come back to that marketing research because we need to ask, understand what we're gonna research. What are we gonna ask people about? So it's very early in the morning here in the States. And so one of the biggest things that I needed to focus on was coffee and potentially you're on a cup of tea uh, there in the UK. But a lot of times we think about decisions so simplistically. I need coffee, I'll get coffee. But in reality, that decision for me was, I need coffee, I need to go take a shower, I need to look good for you people, I need to brush my teeth. If I were going out, it was too early to go out, but I would potentially go out, I would go to the store, I would find a place to park, I would stand in line, I'd make a decision about what type of coffee to make, I would go to the barista, I would ask for what I, uh, whatever I wanted, I would exchange some money, What? how am I going to pay cash, credit card, You know, phone, whatever, and then I would get my coffee. That's the key behavior. But we simplify the behavioral journey far too much as fundraisers. In life, we do this as well. But we simplify the key behavior far too much. And as a result of that, we lose why people make decisions. And this is just another example. Like it's, you know, one, to, uh, almost two o'clock your time. You're probably thinking about where uh, to go for, for a pint after work. So what goes into that decision? Well, this flow talks about like, what are all the pieces that I would need to do to think about how, what, where am I going to go to dinner? It's the same thing if you're going to go, go to the pub after. Where, what are all the decision-making steps that I need to make? These are all the steps that your donor is making. When they go to your website, when they open up your mail, they first have to open up your mail, then they have to look at your mail, then they have to decide what they're going to give, then they have to make a decision about how they're going to respond to that gift and do they have a stamp and how are they going to put that back in the mail and all, all those things. So decision-making is not as simple as we make it. 
but we can use this three B's framework, the three BS, you get it, framework, to think about, first of all, what is the behavior that we want donors to do? And I would say your behavior is not them to, to donate. It's not for them to donate. Control small decisions at a time. Try to control small decisions at a time. So the behavior that you want is for them to open the email, to open the mail, right? To, uh, to click on a button. Those are the behaviors that you want to design for and make that as small and as identifiable as possible. Then think about what are all the behavior or all the barriers that go into the behavioral change that we're asking them to do. So if we want them to open the mail, what are the barriers? There's lots of other mail. Our mail doesn't stand out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then what are the benefits that they get? Or how, so I, how can I add or decrease motivation for completing that behavior? So one of the things that a lot of good fundraising copywriters will talk about is putting something on the outer envelope that encourages someone to open the mail. Starting a story on the outside of the envelope is good practice because it creates the need to open the mail in order to find out why uh, what happens in the story. Handwritten out, outer envelopes encourage people to open the mail because the barrier is that people get lots of mail. It doesn't, it's not for me. It's not personalized. I don't know who this is. Handwritten indicates that person probably knows me. They took some effort. I want to see what's inside. And I fall for this all the time in my post box. I want to talk about this idea called thin slicing. And the, I, the thin slicing in behavioral science comes from the idea that no matter how thinly you slice a piece of cake, you have a sense of what that cake is about. And I'm trying to make you hungry on purpose right now, right? But we have this idea that we can understand people based upon very little bits of information. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do is take, uh, after this session is over, go online and look at the Time Magazine, Time Magazine personality quiz that will predict your politics. So just Google uh, Time Quiz for um, predicting politics. It's 10 questions. It will take you just a minute as soon as we're over. And you will be able to see whether this actually comports with your politics. I will say it was very close on mine. Uh, and there are things like, do you prefer cats or dogs? And that's because we can get a very quick sense of who people are from very small bits of information. And the big five personality traits, whether or not you believe in this is not really important, but the big five uh, personality traits are thin slices of ideas of how we kind of everyone falls on some uh, gravitates towards one end of the spectrum according to the theory. Do I totally believe this? Not necessarily. But what I want to share with you is that for each one of these big five personalities, um, wherever you land, if you're more open, if you're more agreeable, if you're more conscientious, if you're more neurotic, if you're more extroverted, you, um, you there are behavioral tools that can affect you more significantly. And therefore... And therefore, your donors. So I'm not going to go through each one of these because I want to get to uh, the market research component. But where these uh, where these words are um, highlighted or different colors, that's all the research. 
on each one of these so you can follow this research. But I will just want to summarize. If you're open to research, you like, for example, wording to be more verbose and more unique that encourages you to reflect and come to your own conclusion rather than something that's very direct. If you're conscientious, you prefer copy that's factual and newsy and you um, will be nudged by appeals to conformity, um, trying to be part of the group. If you're extroverted, you prefer aesthetics that are loud and bright and warm, uh, and you're, you, you like things to be now, so you will uh, be nudged by future discounting. Make this decision today and you'll save or something like that. Agreeableness, you, um, you take into other people's perspectives. Obviously, that's what you are. You're agreeable. So you'll, you'll be nudged by appeals to avoid confrontation, uh, to stick to morals and avoiding regret. And then if you're neurotic, you'll um, look at things that are um, that emphasizes personal distress, right? Someone's hurting someone is feeling helpless and um, they also will respond to people that they perceive are attractive. Um, so those are just things to think about. And, and where I want to close is this idea that the science around understanding our donors is actually quite a lot closer and quite a lot more accessible than, um, than we previously thought. Science and technology has enabled us to make these decisions. I got the opportunity to spend time learning from Dr. Howard Moskowitz. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a great TED Talk by Malcolm Gladwell where he was supposed to talk about his book um, and instead he got up and talked about Howard and how Howard has changed the world when it comes to product design. And what Howard has made available to us is this understanding that a lot of people just don't know what they want. When it comes to product design, when it comes to donor messaging, they just don't know what they want and they can't explain what they want. And when it comes to segmentation, there's a value in saying there are different groups of people, just like that personality trait uh, concept, which is just an example, but there are different ways of breaking apart people groups to say these people generally believe this, these, general, these people are generally nudged with this idea, these people believe certain things and we can put messages in front of them that have really nothing to do with demographics or psychographics or any of the things that we've learned about before. But most importantly, Howard has said that there's no such thing as a platonic donor message, this one donor message that will appeal to everyone. So if there's one thing that I can leave you with, it's the idea that the one true copy is really never going to work in your shop. That if you can come up with three, maybe four different donor messages that are identifying a specific mindset, specific groups of people that you're trying to work with, and that you continually test those ideas, you'll see what other brands have done. All of these leading companies have done is test iteratively those small, small decisions, opening the mail, clicking on the button to see what can I do to optimize that behavior and then nudge our customers or our donors just iteratively, just small changes to get them to do uh, what we would want to do. Now, Howard proved this um, with the example of spaghetti sauce. Prego called him up and said, hey, we're losing market share significantly to Ragu. Can you help us come up with this idea for what to do with our product? It turns out that authentic spaghetti sauce is very much like what Ragu made in the 1980s. But when in the United States, in particular, when they tested this, they found that most people didn't like traditional spaghetti sauce, that a group of people, a significant group of people liked chunky spaghetti sauce, which most Italians would say, oh, no, no. But Prego introduced it based upon Howard's research, and they made $600 million in that first few years because of chunky spaghetti sauce. How many chunky spaghetti sauce converts are we missing out in, uh, uh, for donors because we're not a, 
attentive to what they're interested in. The same is true. And I said on Twitter that I'm going to use that, that gift that was uh, posted about Dr. Pepper. The same is true with cherry uh, vanilla, Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper came to Howard and said, we need a new product that uh, gets people excited about Dr. Pepper again. And he basically invented that tested different combinations of cherry and vanilla and Dr. Pepper to come up with the cherry vanilla format that again made millions and millions of dollars for Dr. Pepper. And what Howard will tell you and what the science is about that I would I, I would encourage you to continue to research is discovering the bliss point. So in, in food, what Howard works in, food bliss points have to do with fat and sugar and salt and what that mouthfeel is that gets you sati satiated. Like I love this and I will eat more of this. With donors, we need to dis discover that donor bliss point where they're excited. And I would say that this is true universally around the world, that we want to get more people to donate. We want to get more people to volunteer. We want to get people to engage with organizations and be involved in their communities. And we can test all of these small decisions, the right pieces of data to share with them, the right image to share with them, the right story, the right offer, the right message. And each one of those is its own study, its own data point that we can iterate on to be able to get to the next step, to get to the next step. And are we going to ever get to perfection? No. Howard would say we would never, ever get to perfection. That Our goal is to get asymptotally better, closer to whatever that bliss point is or whatever that donor volunteer engagement looks like. So our goal is not perfection. Our goal is improvement. And we constantly test in order to get closer to that space. Now, lest you think that these tools are hundreds of thousands of dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars. There are organizations that will charge you that much, but almost all of the survey methodology out there has a component for something like called conjoint analysis, which is very similar to Howard's research. It's not exactly the same because it doesn't break into those mindset types, but things like uh, Qualtrics, which I'm sure you've heard of, has a component for uh, conjoint analysis, which does something very similar to this work. There's a product called conjoint.ly, C-O-N-J-O-I-N-T.ly. I have no relationship with this, uh, this firm at all. They have an online survey tool. You can use the survey tool for free, but again, we, there's some challenges with surveys, but they have a conjoint analysis tool and they have a free trial. So I encourage a lot of people to check this out. So there's no such thing as a platonic donor message. In fact, some of the things that you're putting out on your website, on your emails, actually demotivate people from giving. And that may be something to be mindful of as you move forward in making your decisions. But most importantly, I want to, to, uh, to say this to you. It's the middle of the day for many of you. Uh, there's a chance that um, you are that person for whom you built this Bionicle. And your boss is, uh, throughout the day, has been taking apart that Bionicle and throwing it away uh, and demotivating you. And so I, I hope that's not the case. I hope your boss has said thank you to you. But um, if not, I want to take this moment to say thank you. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you work. I do know that you have been through a lot. I do know that you have that you continue to make a gigantic difference in the communities that you work in. I know that you work hard. I know that you've taken time out today to get even better at your craft because you care about the work that you do so much and the communities that you serve in. So let me, on behalf of everyone in your community, say these words to you. Thank you. Thank you for your perseverance in the face of all the things that we're all facing. Thank you for the work that you do. I hope that you are encouraged to continue to do this work.
We're going to go into Q&A. There is a question about reading recommendations on behavioral science and behavior change in general. There is so much, Eve. Uh, thank you for that question. I will actually share um, on Twitter um, my list of behavioral science resources, um, including a, uh, a discount code for Dan Ariely's Irrational Labs. It's a course, it's mostly on demand um, on behavioral science that I think is really, really well done. Um, and it's relatively inexpensive that that I think is is worthwhile. That course is um, based upon the work that Dan did in Predictably Irrational, which is a great book on, on behavioral science. Right now, there's a ton of books on behavioral science. It's super on trend right now. So there are books like Nudge uh, by Richard Thaler that I would recommend. Um, honestly, one of the books that I would recommend to fundraisers is a book called Change by Damon Santola. Um, and that's because a lot of us didn't realize that our job is not fundraising. It's on uh, change management. Um, and in that vein, if you have not, if you're interested, there's a book called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be by Katie Milkman. Katie's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Uh, she guest presented at our Harvard Business School class, um, but those are those are great authors that I would recommend. Um, and they're really, uh, there's so many resources out there um, that, that would be beneficial. Um, uh, Marin Marin, sorry if I mispronounce your name, um, asks about, I wonder how BS would translate to applications to trusts and foundations. I think it depends on whether you're asking for money or if you are uh, distributing money, depending on the, the circumstances of your trust and or foundation. Um, everything that we do has some element of behavioral science. Everything that we do has something to do with behavioral science. So I gave you the example of going out to get coffee, um, everything on your website. If you're asking anyone to do anything, it has something to do with a behavioral decision that someone is making. So uh, in that Harvard class that I took, which I would also very much recommend, it's a little pricier, but really worthwhile. I learned more in that course than I've learned in almost anything else in my life. Uh, and the professors are super accessible, which I thought was really, uh, really wonderful. But we didn't really we didn't talk about nonprofits at all. They talked about decisions like climate change, like affecting climate change, and how we can get people to turn um, their thermostats up a little bit, especially in the summer, to save energy. Or things like uh, how to get someone to. Um, uh, there was a retail case study that we did about retail customers. So. Any call to action that you have as a trust or foundation, any decision that you want someone to make, whether it's to apply for a grant um, or um, if you're asking people to donate, there are behavioral science, there's friction. Oh, that's another good book, actually. Roger Dooley wrote a book called Friction uh, that I think is really helpful for nonprofits. Um because so many of our websites, I was actually mentioning to Roger that one of the things that's really frictionful is uh, nonprofit websites. There are so many buttons to click and so many things that I have to do in order to make the decision. I'm The thing you have to remember is whenever someone gets to your website, they have their credit card in their hand. No one goes to your donate page and is convinced to make a donation on the page. They might be convinced to make a higher donation or unfortunately a lower donation, but they have their credit card in their hand. I worked in an arts organization uh, during the pandemic. And one of the things that I was telling our box office is that when someone picks up the phone, when they are on the phone with you and they they're, they're connected to you, the receptionist, 
the, the box office person, though in their other hand is a credit card. They have already made a decision to buy a ticket. Their credit card is already ready to go. So your job is, is to get out of their way to make the decision easy for them. So when it comes to trust and foundations, not knowing the specific circumstance, feel free to reach out later and we can talk about it. But um, if you're asking them to read a report, if you're asking them to, um, to share something, all of those decisions are behavioral science decisions. So we as fundraisers, our, uh, our activity is really around um, architecting decisions to help people do what they already want to do, what they're already called to do. So with that, I know that we're a couple of minutes over time. Again, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for, um, for being here today. And I look forward to seeing all of this uh, in, in action in the future. Please let me know how and where you use this uh, in, in, in your shops and, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.